as uh, as Chris has just said, we are in our autumn teaching series in Revelation. And so we're going to be um, in Revelation, primarily Revelation chapter 18 today. So if you want to turn there um, and the whole the whole point of this series, the reason we're calling it a certain future is um, as we introduced last week, we live in a time where this probably isn't going to be of any surprise to anybody, but uncertainty is just surrounding us. It's just about everything in our life. We can't say, yes, for certain that is going to happen and that is going to happen. And so we are looking at what scripture says about our future and how certain we can be about the things, particularly how things are going to end, the end of our story with Jesus and what our forever future looks like with him. And so we're grounding our feet in what scripture says about that so that we we're able to live in these the uncertainty of today. And the, the where we're at in Revelation and, and I guess the whole of Revelation after chapter three, so four onwards, is a series of visions, as we talked about a bit last week, that Jesus gives to John to then pass on to these churches that he knows through letter. And these visions that um, that Jesus gives to John, they are primarily a telling and then retelling of the time that we are living in right now. And by that, I mean the, the whole time between Jesus's resurrection 2000 years ago, all the way through to whatever time Jesus returns, that the visions that John sees primarily are just telling and retelling from lots of different perspectives what is going on in that time. And all of them end with a, a kind of, and there will be an end. And then it kind of, once it sort of alludes to that, it then, oh, time for another vision uh, telling us a little bit of what's going on. So none of them go into detail into what the end times will look like, but many of them suggest that the end is going to begin with some kind of judgment from God. And we see it, I won't go into lots of the detail, but we see it in chapter six, we see it in chapter seven, we see it in chapter 11, we see it in chapter 14, we see it in chapter 16, so a lot of it. And so when we then turn to chapter 17, and in verse one, we read this. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. When we read there that the angel saying to John, come and see judgment, that is a clue to us that we are starting to see the beginning of the end of history as judgment starts to come. And, and we see that this judgment is with this, this great prostitute, um, which then if you carry on through to verse five, you, you hear this prostitute has the name, uh, the name Babylon. And this, the judgment of this figure Babylon takes up all of chapter 17 and all of chapter 18. 18 is where we're going to be spending most of our time this morning. And today's message, uh, as we kind of delve right into the heart of Revelation and some of the, the very strange imagery to our ears as we, and eyes as we see it, um, today's message I'm calling, She's Not That Pretty. And what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be looking at what Babylon is, why does Jesus want us to be aware of Babylon and how we can respond to what it is that we read here? Because as I say, we are right in the heart of Revelation, right into some of the more challenging, strange things that we can find in there. But yet for all of its strangeness, for all of its, its weirdness to us, actually this message more than any other in the book of Revelation is going to be opening our eyes to the realities of today. 
And so I really want to encourage you as we get into this to, to really try and track along with it because I think it's gonna give us, uh, as we go through it, we're gonna see some really practical ways that we can respond and, and act as a result of what we read here today. So we are gonna be reading from Revelation chapter 18, um, verses one through to three, and I've asked Rianne if she'll read those. So the words will appear on the screen and Rianne will read them for us. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Thank you so much, Rianne. So some fairly vivid words and images start to be conjured up there. And as we start here with the judgment of God on Babylon, it's just worth acknowledging that the idea of the judgment of God is one of the least attractive ideas to us and least palatable things for us. It doesn't make it onto the, the texts on God's judgment. Don't make it into many of the, the inspirational Instagram posts that you find of scripture. The, the, the idea of we're all down with a God that is loving, a God that is merciful, a God that, that loves me unconditionally and blesses me abundantly, which of course are all true. But when we come across an idea that God is a God who judges, we think, oh, I'm not quite so sure about that. And that is because we are so in a culture of, of where tolerance and acceptance are the things that are, are seen as the highest virtues. And so the idea of judgment cuts right across the ideas of tolerance and acceptance. And in fact, one of the most or least appropriate uh, or worst cultural sins that you can commit is to be seen as judgmental. And so the idea of God being a God who judges can, can kind of offend our taste buds a little bit. It can sit uneasily on our palate. But what if I were to say the justice of God? suddenly it's a bit of a different story. That the fight for justice for us is a much more palatable idea. And one of the great things about society today is that, that we are so concerned, many, many people are so concerned more than they ever have been with the idea of justice, that we wanna see wrongs made right. And that now that the world is at our fingertips and our eyes have been opened to the, how the world is at large, we see that every nation, everywhere, every worldview has its injustices. We can see them and we want to see them change. And it can be overwhelming sometimes, can't it? That you turn on your social media feed and it's, it's this issue and it's that issue and it's that thing and it's that thing. And you think, where do I even begin to care about some of these things? It's so, there's so much going on. But what it shows us is that we are a society that cares and that we as believers, we care about seeing the wrongs of this world made right. And as we build through the book of Revelation to chapter 17, and as the, the end of things starts to approach, we see that the judgment of God and the justice of God, they are two sides of exactly the same coin. You cannot have one without the other. That as we lead up to chapter 17, let me just read you a few verse 
um, verse references from chapters 15 and 16, just the two chapters before. Chapter 15, verse 3, just and true are your ways, O king of the nations. Chapter 16, verse 5, just are you, O holy one, for you brought these judgments. And then chapter 16, verse 7, Lord God, the almighty, true and just are your judgments. That just as we are troubled by the idea of an unjust, unjust world, how much more is God? That here we see that, that God's heart in this whole process is not, oh, I'm just going to bring my hammer of judgment. But his heart is, I want to create what creation was always intended to be. I want to move towards the purpose that was always meant to be. That this would be a just and righteous society. That humankind would not know the rife injustices that we currently face. And for justice that God wants to see come, judgment against all that is unrighteous and all that is unjust must come as well. And that is what we're going to see over the next three Sundays or the, this Sunday and the next two Sundays after this is got some of God's judgment over that which is unrighteous. And particularly here in the case of Babylon, that which is unjust, uh, unjust and creates injustice in society. So what is Babylon? is a good question and a good place to start. Well, again, just a reminder from something we looked at last week, Babylon, uh, Re Revelation, sorry, was a letter written to a group of churches in its very simplest form. It is a letter written to people to, so that they would understand and that they would be helped. And the very simplest way of understanding, or in its very simplest form, Babylon represents the Roman Empire to the original listeners. For the original listeners, under the controlling power of Rome, who were occupying them and to some extent oppressing them, the Roman Empire was the very definition of an evil, corrupt, power-hungry empire. And what they are reading here is that Babylon is fallen. Babylon is going to come crashing down at some point. Rome will one day fall, which of course we know was correct and true. But Jesus, through John, to these churches is also saying far more. Because notice that he calls Rome Babylon. What he's saying here is that the rise of this evil, corrupt empire of Rome, it's not just a one-off. It's not just some quirk of history that's, that uh, an empire such as this arose. But in calling it Babylon, he is speaking right into the history of the people of God. If you know some of your Bible story, you might be aware that, uh, that there was a nation, Babylon, that, that conquered and overcame the people of God in the Old Testament and took them off into exile and also conquered and, in, and, and occupied them and, or, or brought them into occupation, if you like, and uh, oppressed them and were also corrupt and evil. That in the Jewish imagination before, before Rome, Babylon was the very definition of an evil, oppressive, power-hungry nation that corrupts and enslaves. And so, and even what John is saying here and what Jesus is saying to John is that there is a pattern emerging here. And in fact, Babylon has been used in reference in the book of Revelation to the cities of Sodom and the city of Egypt already. Again, two nations that looked very similar. And what is happening here is that Jesus is saying, look, the, recur the recurrence of cities and civilizations and cultures that look like this, that are evil and corrupt and oppressive, 
It's not random. And this is the whole point of the, the, the visions in the book of Revelation is what Jesus is doing is he's kind of he's pulling back the curtain of all that we see and saying there is more than what you, you initially see going on in, in these things. He's kind of I want you to see the reality that is behind the reality. And what he's saying is that these superpowers, they're not just popping up out of nowhere at random because a group of evil people happen to be getting together and happen to have power. Now he's saying that there is consistently an evil personality that is behind the rise of these nations and these powers. And the extent of their influence was right there in verse three that we that Rianne read out. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. That what, it, what we're seeing here is that there is a, a, a spiritual reality of Babylon behind not just historic Babylon, not just the historic Roman Empire, but through every nation that has ever existed and still exists today. That the influence of Babylon is everywhere. And so what exactly is the corrupting influence of Babylon? Well, again, we see it a little bit in verse three, but we see it even clearer as we go through the whole of chapter 18. So uh, if we could just bring up the slide with, with a few references, just so that we don't have to read through it all, but just to try and get a, a bit of a grip of, of what, is, what, what is actually behind Babylon and what's it, what is its power? Here we have in verse three of chapter 18, the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And then hopping down to verse nine, we have this group of people, the kings of the earth. The kings of the earth who committed sexual morality and lived in luxury with her. And then verse 15, the merchants now of these wares who gained wealth from her. So here we have three different groups of people, kings, merchants, and uh, and sailors as well are in there. And they have grown corrupt through the wealth, uh, the promise of wealth and riches to them. That the power of Babylon, as simply as I know how to say it, is the seductive desire for more and the destructive desire for more at work in nations and civilizations and cultures. The, uh, the idea that the, the, the good life and the best life I could have would be through more wealth and more luxury and more stuff. That is the power of Babylon. There was a man, J.D. Rockefeller, who you might have heard of before. In the 19th century, he was, uh, he was considered to be, and still is kind of considered to be, the richest man who has ever lived. And he was once asked at the height of his wealth, now you've got all of the money, how much money is actually enough? And his answer was just a little bit more. That right there, I don't think the spirit of Babylon could come up with a better mission statement for what, what it is all about. That it is about preaching a false gospel and luring people into a false gospel that says that the good life can only be got 
by the accumulation of wealth and of luxury and of comfort. And the more and more you have of that, the better and better and better your life will be. And Babylon is then about trying to, to work behind the scenes to establish whole cultures and civilizations and ecosystems and globalized trade networks that are driven and built upon this entire ethos of just a little bit more. And that that is what Babylon in history looked like. That's what the Roman Empire, that's what had corrupted the Roman Empire. And it's what's corrupted every nation since and is still alive here today. Why, have you ever wondered why, 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 uh, sorry, why enough never seems like enough? Or you might be perfectly comfortable and, and happy and feel like I've got enough, but there's always that sense of, oh, but I just want a, a little bit more wealth, a little bit more luxury. Or why is it that just buying something creates a little bit of a thrill in us? I, the other day, I bought some, some laptop screen cleaner on Amazon. The most mundane purchase you can ever think of. Yet still, when I pressed that buy button, there was a little thrill inside of me that I cannot deny. That, that, that just that the idea of having something more in my life was thrilling for me. What, what is that about? Why is that? It's because we live in Babylon. We live in a whole society, in a whole world that is driven by this idea of, of more is better. I need as much stuff as I can get my hands on. Wouldn't you say, as you look at the world around us, that, that, that it looks very similar to this? This is what it looks like. That the desire to have more or the desire to, to accumulate as much luxury and wealth as we possibly can is just baked into our society. It's in our media, it's in our education system, it's in our advertising, it is everywhere. We are in a thoroughly Babylonianized culture and society. And it shouldn't surprise us because Jesus says in verse three, all nations have drunk. And what Jesus is saying here is that the pull towards Babylon for all of us, the lure is very, very real. Notice how Babylon is described in, in verse 4 of chapter 17. So this is the first description we have of her. This is how it opens. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup. That's quite a lengthy description and she, she sounds beautiful. She sounds alluring. She sounds like everything that she, I want that. I want her. That Jesus is saying, look, the, the idea of luxury and comfort and wealth and, and, and the, orienting the goal of our life to just how much can I accumulate is always going to be an attractive temptation for us. But what Jesus is doing here is he's wanting to expose to us and say, look, she might look pretty. She might look good. She might be, look full of promise but she is corrupt and she will destroy you and she does not have the good life. That this, it, he immediately follows on in his description. She holds in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And, and as we heard from the reading earlier, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place 
for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. Jesus here is just at pains to lay out to John, to pass on to these churches. The good life really is not found in following after her. Do not succumb to her seduction and her allures because they, they are rank and they are evil. And what we're going to do now is just have a little look into what chapter 18 opens up for us is, is what the Babylonian life looks like. And so it's one of those times where we're going to have to see just how bad the bad news is in order to appreciate the good news that follows. And so where we are going to finish is how we can respond in light of some of these things and, and focus on just how good Jesus is. But in order to get there, we have to plumb into some of the, the depth of the evil that Babylon seeks to, to, seeks to perpetuate. So I hope that's all right. That's just a little bit of where we're going as we delve into some of the, the grimness that Babylon brings about. And in chapter 18, we read of these three groups that we came across before that are uh, the kings that we read about in verses 3 and 9, the merchants in 3, 11 and 15, and the sailors in verse 17. And these groups of people, as Babylon falls, are, are wailing and lamenting and ripping their clothes as they realise that, that, that what they have, have gained is, is all coming to nothing. And yet there's something not quite right about this picture. Because as we look at it, we think, why only these three groups of people, these fairly specific, seemingly chosen at random groups, where is the voice of everybody else? That Babylon promised riches. The scholars say that these three groups of people were the only ones to have tasted anything like the promise of what Babylon said. These are, the, these are the groups of people that have managed to accumulate some wealth from following Babylon. They were the winners, but the rest of society is silent because they ended up with nothing. That what we start to see here and what is strongly suggested is that Babylon is creating a seriously disordered society and the suggestion that is hinted at here is then spelled out in brutal detail right at the center of the chapter verses 11 through to 13 that we'll just bring up on the screen that what we have here is a from verse 12 a long list of the commodities that changed hands at speed between these groups of people to help them accumulate more and more and more and more and, and get more and more wealth for themselves and to, to build themselves up in riches as they followed after Babylon. We've got gold and silver and jewels and pearls. I won't read it all out. But we're just item after item after item, commodity, tradable wealth, tradable wealth, tradable wealth, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots. And then we hit the in the prominent final position emphatically and slaves that is human souls as if reading just the word slaves doesn't hit home for us john wants to underline it and say what was traded were human souls that here we see right at the heart of the deception of babylon that it promises so much 
and promises that everyone who follows will be able to, to get and get and get. But for some, a very few to taste the riches, even just a fraction of the riches that she seems to promise. Many people have to miss out. That it creates this brutal polarizing and division within society, that it separates people right away into the haves and the have-nots. That for, for some in society to become rich, it's not just then that some might have to be a little bit poorer, but for some in society to become rich, others must become their possessions. That other people in society become their belongings. That people themselves become commodities to be to be traded, to be passed around, to be used, to be maximised for profit. That here we see right at the heart of the, the insidious evil of the Babylonian Empire. That it promises so much. But what it is really about is dehumanisation. That it looks to rob people of their created worth and their created dignity and just reduce human beings to their economic value. It just makes people into line items on a spreadsheet, identified only by their efficiency or their ability to be productive and to produce on my behalf. Here we see just how intent Babylon is at taking people away from God and how God would want society to be. Because the way that God wants society to be is a place in which every single person has value and every single person matters for who they are. Where every single person has worth and dignity and value simply because they have been created in the image of God. And what Babylon here is trying to do is rob and take from that, that some people would be worth and some people would be worth far less. That when Babylon comes in and corrupts, some people were reduced to having no value. And if we allow Babylon to overcome us and we, we can start to fall into, without really thinking, partnership with Babylon. And so be partnering with Babylon and the spirit of Babylon in this age, partnering with them to, as we accumulate more luxury and more stuff and chase after the good life in that way, we contribute to, to dehumanising and devaluing people ourselves. And part of the evil of Babylon in our age is that with this globalised economic society that we have, the human cost of us accumulating more wealth and more possessions and more stuff is often hidden from our eyes. It's actually designed to be hidden from us. Designed that we wouldn't see it, that... The, the, the dehumanisation is happening to someone else over there. That we don't have to be confronted with it. We don't have to see it. That the human cost of accumulating wealth here in the West is often paid by someone in a, in a sweatshop in Bangladesh or someone in an iPhone factory in China. 
Now, I want to be really, really clear at this point. The point of this passage and the point of what I'm trying to preach right now is not to make us feel guilty, not to look at ourselves and think, what have I done wrong? The whole point of this passage, that what Jesus is trying to do is to, to say there is an evil spiritual power at work that is perpetuating this whole system and this whole economy. And it is a spiritual power that wants to stay hidden, doesn't want us to see these things, doesn't want us to think about these things. But Jesus, in his grace and in his mercy, is exposing them so that we can see Babylon and see society, see the reality behind the reality. That we can see and understand some of these things so that it provokes in us a, a righteous grief. That this is the world that we live in. And a righteous anger that makes us want to fight. Which leads me to verse 4 in chapter 18. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. Now I find this an incredibly encouraging verse based on all that I've just described. I said it was going to be kind of heavy and I'm sure you're feeling it. I can't really feel the sense in the room at the moment, but it's pretty grim. I find this incredibly encouraging that we are able to resist Babylon. He, Jesus says, come out of Babylon. That as dominant as Babylon might appear and as all encompassing, the call is we can resist. That we, uh, what, what it's saying here is to not withdraw from society completely, not just to, to come out and live in our own, in our own separate ecosystem somewhere over here. That's not what it's talking about at all. As we saw in verse three, it says all nations have been influenced and corrupted by Babylon. There's no way of escaping, but we can resist. I just love that the expectation here from Jesus's mouth is the church will always be in a society where Babylon is prevalent. But yet, within that society, the church can flourish. Doesn't have to be overcome, doesn't have to be colonized by the spirit of Babylon. That as we see society as it is made to be, we are able to live a counter culture. We are able to live differently to the way of Babylon. And there is so many things that that can look like, so many ways that we can live differently. But I just want to outline the single way that I think that we can live differently. One single act that I think co completely goes against the spirit of Babylon. That where Babylon is all about what can I get, what can I get, what can I get, what can I get? We can just choose to give, 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 give. That if we want to live differently to how the way that we have just heard Babylon seeks to, seeks to, to, to draw us in, we can just choose to give in response. We can give big, we can give small, we can give money, we can give cakes, we can give cars, we can give clothes, we can, we can give little and often, we can give 
big and extravagant and infrequently. We can, we can give in a way that we have decided line by line on a spreadsheet, this is who I'm giving to this much, uh, this date for the next 12 months, or we can give in a way that is random and spontaneous and just as we feel like it. We can give to organizations and to charities and established bodies, or we can give to, to individuals, friends, families, we can give to strangers. Whatever it looks like, all of it is an act of resistance against the evils of Babylon that we have just seen and laid out. As Babylon seeks to dehumanise and rob people of their created value and their intrinsic worth, we, as the church, have the power through simple acts of practical generosity, we have the power to impart life into people. We have the power to, to show someone their worth, to say you have worth, you are worthy of giving something to. I'm not gonna try and take from you, I'm not going to try and take you, I'm going to give to you. I think this gives a whole new meaning a whole new level of what it means to give our possessions and give our money away it takes it it's not simply a, a good christian obedient thing to do it's not just simply beneficial because it might bless someone but it turns giving we see here into spiritual warfare this is defiance against the advances that babylon might be making in in our church in our in our society and in our hearts Every time we give something, every time we show some generosity, we are breaking the hold that Babylon might have in us and the level to which we might be complicit and partnering. I heard this, um, uh, this interview this week with a guy called Gordon MacDonald, who's a, a, a pastor and um, author in America. And he's 80 years old now, and he was just spelling out some of his life lessons throughout that time. And he says through the last 57 years, one of the greatest things he's done is lived off just 80% of his income so that he's able to give 20% away. Now, I am nowhere near that, but I want to get there. I want to, I want that, isn't that, what an aspiration to have. Forget kind of living the, the Instagram uh, influencer lifestyle or anything like that. What an aspiration to have that we might be able to have enough to just give and give and give away. I just think that there's such an opportunity for us as a church here that shows the world a different way of living. That we're in this time now where there is a heightened awareness in so many different ways that the way that the world is ordered is, is not right. There is, there is disorder there is injustice and there is dehumanization in our society. People, people know that at this time more than we have for years and years, perhaps generations. And yet while the world might not be ready to listen to the words that the church has to say, it does watch the actions of the church and it can see through the way that we are with one another and with the, the world at large. We can show an alternative society. We can live out this, this way of generosity right at the centre, a way that restores and builds and imparts life to people. We can show an answer to that, that inner knowledge that there is a Babylon deception going on here and this isn't quite right. 
But of course, the the major narrative that is going on here and the bigger story is that however much we might be able to resist Babylon, however hard we fight and, and we must fight, we will never truly be able to overcome and overthrow Babylon. We won't be able to do it. But we know someone who can. And we know someone who will. And in fact, we know someone who has. Listen again to how verse 1 is worded. It says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Notice here it's talking about a future event, an event that is not only future here, but future for us. Future is still to come, but yet it is using language of the present. Babylon is already fallen. And this right here, this is the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. This here is the power of the death of Jesus where it dealt a mortal blow to evil. The moment that looked like the greatest defeat actually being the moment of great victory. This was the irrecoverable, mo irrecoverable moment for evil. When Jesus died on the cross, it was finished and it was done. The fight was already happened. That we are not now living in a time where we have to try and fight this fight. The outcome of this battle has already been decided. There is only one outcome happening. And God wants us to be in absolutely no doubt that the injustice and the unjust ways of Babylon in society are coming to an end. There will be a final judgment for Babylon to face where Babylon will face the, the, the will have to give an account for all of the evil and injustice that it has perpetuated over generations throughout all history, and it will be put under the feet of Jesus. And when Babylon falls and injustice finally ends, we will be there and we will be celebrating. Verse 1 and 2 of chapter 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are just and true for he has judged the great prostitutes this is one of the major themes of the whole book of revelation of worship of jesus the victor worshiping jesus because the work has been finished in the single moment of the cross everything was done and now the rest of history is just waiting for the fullness and the culmination of the work that was done then. That we now find ourselves in a waiting and in the waiting we simply worship because it is finished. And so while our response is to actively resist and to fight, at the same time as resisting, we can rest. That our response is to, to what I like to call have a, a worshipful rest in worshipful assurance that we can just we know this is not our fight to fight it is not down to us to bring babylon crashing down
that it has already happened by the blood of Jesus. Babylon has been defeated. And so our certainty now in these uncertain times where we look to for certainty is not our own ability to fight really well against Babylon and to be a super generous people and to have a society that looks perfectly anti-Babylonian because we'll fail. We'll get it wrong. We'll let one another down. We'll, our selfishness will get the better of us. We'll start to seek our own comfort over and against other people and damage other people in that way. No, that's not where our certainty comes from. Our certainty in these uncertain times is that he is coming. He is coming to bring Babylon crashing down to its knees. That this fight will not be the fight that we're in forever. Despite the arrogance of Babylon saying that it will never fall, Jesus Christ, the greater authority and the higher king says, Babylon, you are going to come crashing down. Injustice will end. Justice will come roaring forth. And that is a guarantee bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the certainty on which we stand. And as Babylon falls, we then just get a little glimpse, a little hint of the beauty of the God-ordered, righteous and just society that is coming. Just as we draw to an end, verse 7 in chapter 19, that will lead us on to our next passage next week. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Immediately following on from the downfall of Babylon, this woman who, who looked so beautiful, but was full of corruption, full of injustice and, and abomination, and full of marred beauty, that right on her heels, we see the emergence of another woman, a, a bride we hear here. And this woman, just like Babylon on first appearance, is absolutely stunning, radiant and beauty, just, just like any bride. But unlike Babylon, the closer you get to this bride, the closer you get to this woman, the beauty and the, the splendour and her spectacular nature and her purity just come ever brighter and are more captivating and radiant to our eyes. She is the perfect contrast to the fallen Babylon. And she is our forever future and our forever home. And we just get a little glimpse of her here, a little hint that she is coming. But we'll meet her fully in the coming weeks.